You're listening to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I speak with Jorge Sanchez Perez, a former postdoctoral fellow in the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project, who is currently an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of Alberta. We discuss Jorge's postdoctoral research on the Warachiri manuscript, which is one of the few surviving records of indigenous Andean philosophy in the Quechua language, and talk about the metaphysical ideas Jorge has worked to uncover in the text. Jorge also offers some advice for people interested in studying indigenous philosophy from within an academic context that can sometimes be hostile to indigenous methodologies and traditions. Well, Jorge Sanchez Perez, I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Olivia. I am really happy to be able to talk to you. Great. So first, I'd like to just hear a little bit more about you and your work. So if I remember correctly, you were a postdoctoral scholar in the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project last academic year, 2021 through 2022. Um, What was that experience like for you? Well, it was a great experience because, and I'm going to be super honest with you, uh, I, I'm really not good at at the whole pretending. Uh, I My dissertation uh, at the PhD level uh, was on global justice. And one mm-hmm. of the main conclusions that I arrived at was that it was nonsensical to call, to say that we're talking about global justice when we just took Western views and extrapolated them everywhere. In my dissertation, I look at Inu, Maori, and Andean philosophical views that would clearly be in tension with what we deem to be global justice. And one of the main conclusions I arrived at was that, well, we need to have better engagement with indigenous thought. Mm. And one of the main questions that I got asked during my defense was, how do we do that with Andean philosophy? or any philosophical views? And I said, that's a great question. I don't know. Studying philosophy in Peru, I was more aware of the writings of Kant, Immanuel Kant, mm. than I was of Andean thought. So we had 14,000 years of civilization completely eradicated from the discussion, and I had nowhere to look at, at least not in philosophical terms, right? And, you know, then I, I, I was familiar with Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project, and I wanted to continue my, my inquiry. It's like, okay, if we're going to be able to deal with these issues of global justice, we have to take indigenous philosophy, this variety of views, seriously as competitors, not just to yeah. see who wins, but to see if we can build something together that's not just mm-hmm. Western views expanding around the world expanding themselves uh, globally. And, you know, I'm Peruvian. I grew up in Peru. I have indigenous roots. And the question was, uh, hey, what does that, what does this Andean thought from indigenous people in Peru look like? And I knew that there were some views gathered by anthropologists, uh, archaeologists, historians, 
but there wasn't a really philosophical system easily uh, of easy access for the people. Right? Yeah. Is it, there wasn't an easy to access philosophical system that we could look at and analyze. And I started going deeper into that, into the question of why. And the reason for that was that this was by design, right? There, there was an attempt by colonial forces to eradicate Andean thought and replace mm-hmm. it with Thomistic Aristotelian views from the Catholic Church during colonial times. There was mm-hmm. these uh, this characters called the extirpators of idolatries that, mm-hmm. uh, that would travel around the land uh, proving that their, their god was superior to these local deities and trying to and trying to to the best of their abilities to eliminate the local knowledge, mm. burning effigies, torturing people, you know, presenting these theatrical representations of good and evil, etc. The good old classic cultural genocide. So by design, we got fourteen thousand years of civilizations and its knowledge eradicated from the books. Um, but one of these extirpators of idolatries, which, if you think about it, sounds like a great heavy metal band name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one of these guys, Francisco de Avila, actually gathered uh, the basic foundational beliefs of the people of the central area of Peru, known as Warochiri, in a document. With the help of a local indigenous person, a Quechua speaker, they mm-hmm. wrote down what can clearly be an equivalent to a Bible, right? We have the methodological times of Andean thought presented to us in this series series of stories that were usually oral traditions. Between the 16th and 17th century, this document was written and polished, and it became the main tool for Francisco de Avila to use against Andean thought. Okay. I was going to ask why he created this document if he was one of the extirpators. You know, you would think he would just be trying to eliminate any record of Andean thought. But so what you're saying is he actually was creating it as almost a more tangible target for then his attempts to exactly. extirpate um, that tradition. I see. I see. Okay. Please and continue. Docu- I just want yeah. No, no. That, that is, thank you for the translation <laughs> or the interpretation. That is exactly what went down. He was basically building a tool to eliminate and then thought, but in order to do it properly, he had to be aware of what was this Andean thought he was targeting. And he even kept this compilation of, of you know, foundational beliefs and, and mythical times and narrations about the nature of things hidden from his supervisors, from his bosses. Mm. It was his, his secret weapon. Uh, which would gather, would grant him some benefits. You know, he would look better because of how efficient he was at his job. So this document, when he died, apparently, ended up in pieces in some parts of the world. But one of the one complete copy was kept in the Library of Madrid, where eventually it was found by an ethnolinguist, a German ethnolinguist who was able to share the document with the world again. So now we have the paradoxical situation where the document meant to destroy and then thought might be one of our best tools yeah. to reconstruct it. 
And, and, but let me just clarify this. A lot of people have thought history of idea, historians of ideas, uh, even some philosophers, uh, cultural critics and anthropologists have been working on the idea of Andean thought from the perspective of authors like Guaman Poma de Ayala and Garcila Soela Vega, which are accounts uh, post-contact, right? Mm -hmm. right? What is unique about the Warachiri manuscript is that it tells us the story of Andean thought before Inca times. Inca times would be the late stage of Andean thought, or a later manifestation of Andean thought. But to reduce okay. all of Andean thought to Inca thought would be a mistake. Mm -hmm. Is this making sense? It would be like, yes. like reducing all of European thought to German idealism. Sure. So by understanding this manuscript better, that allows us to um, figure out perhaps an intercultural conversation in a way where we can see how was Andean thought changing over these years? What were some different um, ideas that might have been developed pre-Inca times and then manifested in different ways in some of the other uh, studies that people have been doing of like post-Incan thought? Exactly. So we have, we have a, a, I think, an appealing tool to have mm -hmm. a better description of what was going down with Andean thought at a broader period of time. Yeah. Well, right? like you said, 14,000 years of civilization, to reduce that to just one narrow period, certainly it stands to reason that that would be a pretty incomplete picture of an entire civilization's you know, contribution to philosophy. Right. Uh, yeah. And of course, this brings an, a set of issues of like, hey, well, but you know, one of the methodological issues that we're going to face with these kind of things is, uh, but these are oral stories. Yeah. How is it that we can consider them to be philosophical sources? Right? Definitely. And that's one of the things that I, I was also addressing during my time at the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. That was one of the main concerns, like one of the main questions was like, that I had to deal with was how are these oral traditions philosophical sources that we can rely on? So how did you work with that idea? I mean, what kind of conclusions have you reached? I understand that this is an ongoing body of work for you, but like right now, how would you respond to somebody asking you? So, okay, how can these oral, how can this record of an oral tradition stand as a philosophical source for us? Uh, well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that philosophy, Western philosophy, has this fetishization of written words, right? And people people have challenged me on the claim that, no, no, philosophy is about be stuff that is written down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I say, well, Socrates didn't write anything, so it would be hard to say that philosophy can be reduced to to what is written down, the counter to that would be that, no, well, Socrates might not have written anything, but Plato did. And thanks to that yeah. is that we have an account of Socrates, which would be a, a false a false statement because Socrates was killed, right? His, right. his impact in the lives of people was felt, even if he didn't left a written record. Mm -hmm. But even if we, if we can dispute that, that philosophy uh, is more than just the written statements uh, that we can find in Plato, to begin with, uh, what we're doing is not philosophy. When we go to a philosophy right. conference, when we discuss ideas, is that not philosophy until we write them down? I find that hard to believe. Mm -hmm. That yeah. was philosophy. Those engagements, 
where philosophy. Right. Right. And then the question is like, okay, even if we can accept that orality might be part of the philosophical canon, the, the, the following challenge I face is, but we're talking about specifically, specifically philosophical interactions, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. oral traditions. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, what is a philosophical source? Uh, the question gets restated. Okay, what is a philosophical source and how can we identify them? Yeah. And in order to answer that, I had to develop uh, an account of philosophy that would allow me to make sense of this. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're going to find an account of philosophy uh, for every philosopher you find, basically. Right. <laughs> right? right. Uh, but I, I, I follow... Lisa Shapiro and Isaiah Berlin in this view that philosophy is about the questions we ask, mm -hmm. right? It's about meaningful questions about life and existence. Mm -hmm. Okay. If we, and usually when we have, when we have a clear question and a clear answer, what we have done is create a new subfield of knowledge, mm -hmm. right? But while it's not super clear, but when we're still pondering these questions and the possible answers, we're still doing philosophy. And that's mm -hmm. if that definition is acceptable, then most societies have been doing philosophy, mm -hmm. including indigenous societies. Mm -hmm. And I take that the sources that can give us insights to answer those fundamental questions about life and existence, mm -hmm. those sources become philosophical sources. Mm -hmm. they, and they may or may not be philosophical texts. Mm or philosophical conversations. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, indigenous oral traditions can easily fit in that. Absolutely. Um, just a little bit to clarify my understanding of conversations that are philosophical self-consciously. So the thought there is you don't have to necessarily be a graduate student in a philosophy department having a conversation for a record of that conversation to be a philosophical source text or um, a philosophical source. You can be just talking about um, your beliefs about life and questions about the world and how it works without even knowing that you're doing philosophy. That still is something, the record of which can be a philosophical source for future generations. Exactly. And the thing with them trying... What I'm trying to do is make room for indigenous philosophical views to be acknowledged as worthy parts of the conversation. Yeah. That is one of my main goals, right? And I'm not trying to necessarily reconstruct one particular Andean thinker this time. I'm trying to make room for the whole tradition. Mm -hmm. And eventually we might be able to find thinkers, contemporary thinkers of that tradition. But we have to make room for the tradition. In order to make room for indigenous philosophical tradition from the Andes, we have to make room uh, for indigenous philosophical views altogether, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm dealing with, a, um, of course, my, my audience, I'm aware, consists of a lot of Western academic analytic philosophers who are mm -hmm. really against making this kind of room, mm -hmm. right? And, and that, that is just a fact. I, I have faced a lot of tensions when I make these claims. Yeah. But if, of course, if I make these claims in an anthropology department, in a political theory department, in a history department, 
and education department, environmental science department, they will be like, of course, indigenous people have philosophical views. What are you talking about? But philosophers tend to be a lot more hard to crack. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to allowing non-Western views into the fold. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which I find this, uh, this push against what I'm doing comes from the claim of the boundaries of the philosophical methodology or the methodology of the philosophical view I'm proposing. Okay. Because yeah. if I'm making room for religious stories as possible philosophical sources, because they have philosophical, what I call philosophical insights, that is ways that can allow us to answer the main questions of life and existence, or like possible bits that can help us build those answers, those insights, uh, they can say, but you are using religious views and that Mm. seems to go against philosophy. Mm. And my answer to that is just look at the history of the Western canon. And this is my my pet example. People kindly forget, (laughs) you know, like easily forget about the first treatise of civil government by John Locke, Mm. which is in many ways an exegetical analysis of the book of Genesis. Yeah. It's like, well, yes, we're all equal thanks to liberalism, but that's because we're all equal in the eyes of God, the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. God. So that move is super easily neglected from our conversations. And of course, mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas is, is a more nuanced, is a highly nuanced thinker. But if one reads the Summa Theologica, one is going to find a lot of references to the Christian Bible. Yeah. So I'm not saying that all the document of all of the Christian Bible should be deemed as a philosophical uh, text. No, I'm saying that it could be a philosophical source because it, conti- mm-hmm. it, it contains a lot of philosophical insights that can help us address these questions. And if we have allowed mm-hmm. that that easily, why not do the same with indigenous views and indigenous traditional stories? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because often it's right alongside religious reflection where people are asking questions about the nature of human life and, you know, our experience of reality. So it makes sense that it would be alongside or through religious stories that uh, philosophical ideas would be discovered to me. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that, you know, we're on the same page. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the two of us are weird. <laughs> or Quite maybe for me. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, you know, is just a little bit more, uh, more a little bit easier to accept this this relationship when you are not denying your own historical, the, the, mm. your own background, right? In mm-hmm. the Western canon is filled with these religious references, yeah. right? Taking the Christian Bible as a point of philosoph- as a philosophical source, doesn't it's not a negative thing. It's just an objective statement, right? Even right. if it's to deny it or deny its validity, it's a point of reference that allows you to develop philosophical thinking. Spinoza is right there. Absolutely. Right. So doesn't have to be like, oh, you're accepting the claims there to make your own answer to these questions of life and existence. No, you're de- you might be denying it. But mm. by taking that as a point of reference, you can build something philosophical. Yeah. I think that's a great answer to people who push back against the kinds of methodological interventions that you're trying to make. Um, But yeah, so I'm really curious to learn more about the metaphysical views that you've started uncovering in your work. But maybe before that, could we just 
get a little bit more historical background. Um, one question that I have for you out of that is, so given that we know that this manuscript was created to be... Um, Weaponized. Exactly. How, to what extent can we feel confident that it's an accurate representation of the ideas of the community? That That is a great question. I, I read some ethnolinguist analysis that mentioned how these how the text seems to be written by the perspective uh, from the perspective of an indigenous person and with the usage of the language of the Quechua language from a mm. native speaker and perhaps the most the most telling thing uh, of the manuscript is the preface <clears throat> mm. uh, I, I i have it in quechua and in spanish uh, but uh, i can give it a go to try to translate it for you they're, that would be English, wonderful. They're English versions of the document, uh, but I have to be honest, I'm not a big fan of them. Yeah. Uh, I think that the Quechua version and the, the... By the way, the document is written in Quechua. Okay. And I think that the Quechua versions and the two, three, two, two versions in Spanish that I'm familiar with are better than the ones I've encountered in English. So sometimes I, I, had, I was working with a document in Quechua, Spanish, and English, and I was like, this doesn't make sense in English. Like, this, <laughs> this thing in English doesn't make sense with other documents. So I was trying to do this exercise of translation where you can find the differences and tensions, but that's a different mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so let me tell you about the preface, or let me translate it for you. Wonderful. It goes something like this. If, they, if the indigenous people of ancient times had known how to, uh, how to write, the life of all of them, everywhere, might not have been lost. Uh, we would have heard news about them, just as we have heard news about the Spanish and their bosses. Their images would appear in front of us. So it is, and because things are like that, and because nothing is written to this point, I speak here about the life of the ancient men of this... Uh, of this town or this area known as Warochiri. Ancient men uh, that had a progenitor, a, a forefather, and about the fate that they had and how they live until this point in time. Of that and of all of that, uh, there will be a record here for memory with regards to each people and how it is and how it was their life since they appear here. So wow. it, it it's a lament, mm. right? And it would be hard for a Spanish writer <laughs> to yeah. write this, you know, for for an extirpator of idolatries, whose job was to eliminate these things because mm. that was the their mission, uh, their their given a job, to write something in this with these terms of sorrow. Yeah. Right. The, the preface seems to be written by somebody that's missing what was lost. Mm -hmm. So how reliable is this? Well, we can debate whether or not this is reliable, but there seems to be a good enough gathering of evidence that shows that yeah. this was written by those who lost. Yeah. That's so interesting. It definitely sounds like there's, you know, good enough evidence to support taking the text at face value as a record of Warachiri ideas, you know, certainly given the fact that it's the record that we have. So 
I'm so curious to hear more about the ideas contained in the manuscript. Could we hear a little bit about that? I mean, I'm sure that it's much more complex and um, full of material than we could possibly talk about in one podcast interview, but maybe just a few highlights or a few key ideas that uh, really excited you and your work in the postdoc um, that you think listeners would be also excited to learn about. Yes. Uh, well, just to point this out, some of the concepts and stories that are told in the Warchery Manuscript actually seem compatible with what somebody like Waman Pomadayala wrote down later down. Mm-hmm right? Or like around the same time, if you wish, uh, the same general uh, period of time, this colonial rec- uh, setup. So there seems to be different ways of corroborating this. Not ideal, any of them, but that happens when you work yeah, with good point. That makes sense. Th- this, yeah. these records, right? Yeah. And my main concern, one of the main philosophical things that I am focused on in the manuscript is uh, metaphysics because and this might be i i completely grant this to anybody who would challenge me here this might be due to my approach to western historical philosophical systems but if we understand metaphysics as the understanding of the ultimate reality or its study then everybody has that yeah right and that seems yeah. to be a, a necessary stepping stone to make sense of everything else. Mm-hmm. So Quechua language uh, to this day contains this concept known as Pacha, which is a, a prevalently feature in the manuscript. And we could talk about Pacha's time and space, but also moment in time and space. And about the, and we can think about it in as the, the reality that's material and immaterial. So this metaphysical concept that is that predicates all your accounts of reality in mm. in Quechua seems sorry let mm. me rephrase that if we don't understand the worldview the foundational elements of the worldview of Quechua people we might not be able to establish a meaningful conversation yeah and one of the first moves to understand that worldview is to understand the concept of pacha mm-hmm. that's what i think so can you say maybe one more time, So, or let me see if I understand. So it sounds like Pacha is this idea of almost the visible world, but also parts of the world that we don't see. It's like everything in existence, everything yes. that there is, almost like we might say like the universe, right, like today, but that's almost too scientific. It's like more uh spiritual in a way than the universe as a as a reference or am i no i, am I, I getting that, there <laughs> I, I think you're getting there and that's the thing that yeah. it's demanding us to think in different terms of the one that we're used to totally right and but that's a necessary step mm. right and, and i explained this to some people um i'm just trying to give uh, to give examples of of how foundational understanding the metaphysical background of certain systems of thought is going to be for us to make sense of this thing, of any society. And I'm like, if you want to talk to a Marxist and you don't embrace the premise of historical materialism, your conversation is not going to go well, right? Yeah, Yeah. it's like you need to have that 
common ground in order for your words to even be referring to the same thing. Even if you disagree, ultimately, you have to have some common ground. Exactly. So Pacha is going to allow us to understand what's at stake in reality, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be, uh, you know, it can be a, a Han and Pacha, the reality above, Kai Pacha, the reality here, uh, Uku Pacha, the reality below. So Pacha, Pacha is going to be the predicate of reality I itself. I see. Right, right. And and you have to clarify which kind of Pacha you are in, or which one you're talking about. So it 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 becomes the necessary condition for you to understand reality itself. Yeah. So it's like it's the ontological category that like the fundamental ontological category that we can then get more specific about to be like well i'm talking about sort of this pacha in this sense or this sort of domain of pacha but pacha is the basic ontological concept that you have to understand before you can understand any claims about reality and what there is within the um within the tradition that we're talking about yes so it becomes and this concept becomes such a big part of our very discussions of of the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that if we are not serious about it, we are going to be losing the possibility of a meaningful, meaningful conversation. I hope this is making sense. <laughs> it is. I'm just really interested. I'm just getting kind of lost in thought because I work on metaphysics and um, one you know, when you said that every thought tradition has a metaphysics because the metaphysics is kind of the way that you articulate your basic beliefs about what there is and how it works, I was in complete agreement with that. But I have enough experience with doing metaphysics, you know, historical metaphysics to know that while it's super tempting to say, oh, this is like substance or, you know, this is like reality, this is like being you can try to draw some analogies, but you have to be careful not to overdo that. And right now I'm like, my mind is doing that thing where it's trying to draw all these analogies and I'm like, okay, hold off. You know, don't, don't, don't assume that you can just neatly um, link up these concepts. But I do feel like I'm starting to get an idea of how this concept works. But that actually brings me to another question that I had for you. So on the topic of analogies and trying to understand, you know, how to, in a way, make these traditions talk to each other, um, one way that you've described your work is in terms of creating tools to allow like people trained in the Western philosophical tradition to understand and appreciate the philosophical value of indigenous traditions. So what do you think about this uh, analogical thinking? Like, do you think that that is a tool that we can use, or do you think that we need different tools? Do you think that there can be dangers to trying to draw analogies too hastily? Okay, that is a great methodological question, and here's me picking up a fight. Uh, <laughs> that that's sort of what I do. That's that's ninety percent of my life is picking up fights with philosophers, uh, because <laughs> you know, the, if we think that philosophy is just moving moving the discipline an inch here by discussing another footnote of this other author so we can get a paper published, then that's not Mm -hmm. my kind of philosophy. I'm sorry. I know that that a lot of people think of this in those terms, but I'm trying to find ways to make sense of the world. Even if that sounds romantic about the field, (laughs) I think that it's 
it's something worth pursuing. That yeah. being said, I think that we have to stop thinking that we can reduce everything to something like English language. Yeah. And I've seen this practice a lot in uh, in in people working in metaethics who tend to mm. reduce metaethics to a grammar analysis of the English language. And one of the worst things I've heard in my life was every concept can be translated to English. Mm. And I'm like, no, that makes no sense. Because sometimes you just have to learn a concept from within its own language. Yeah. Right? To demand translation of abstract thinking uh, is to limit the possibilities of that thought on itself. Right? Mm -hmm. Because not every language is going to contain the same possibilities. Right? Uh, grammatically, that makes so that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I think that Quechua grammar is a key point of a study when we try to do Quechua thought. We can yeah. gather things from it, right? Uh, this this scholar Atuka Eusebio Manga Hesby, he's a Quechua scholar, and he says that uh, in Quechua, in Andean thought, and like Western thought, there isn't a structural structural or contingent account of future time, but a consequentialist mm -hmm. future or a future that is a product of human action. Mm. Right? So the very account of time that comes from this notion of Pacha is going to be different because you're not going to embrace this contingent account of future, which yeah. is going to put a lot of tension in something like uh, historical determinism or social determinism. Yeah. Right? There's going to be a clash there. Yeah. And now, I'm, I'm just let's, let's go back to the, to the issue of methodology. Let's think of some translations that we have embraced commonly in the Western tradition. Let's think of eudaimonia, mm -hmm. right? Which, if we broke it down, if we if we properly break it down, is something like good daimon, right? Like have a good daimon with you, talking to you in a sense. Have a good daimon spirit talking to you. How is that translated in most books in the Western world? Flourishing. How? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, but really, how did we went from the good diamond, the good spirit that's supposed to be around when you are making decisions, and there's a whole complex set of action, agency, and reality at display to flourishing? It's like I I don't think I buy that. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying yeah. we have to all learn ancient Greek. I'm saying let's learn enough to make sense of the concept with this, yeah. with these complexities. Well, this is exactly why I think jumping too quickly to saying, oh, so it's like this is a little bit dangerous methodologically, because part of the problem is not just translating eudaimonia as flourishing, because whoever, you know, whoever decides on flourishing as the correlate to eudaimonia, they have an idea of flourishing, what they mean by that word, that maybe charitably builds in some of what's going on with the ancient Greek word eudaimonia. But then you get to an undergrad philosophy class and somebody reads a text that says flourishing, they don't have that connection. They have these other ideas associated with flourishing. And then very quickly, we get so far away from the original meaning. Um, you know, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but qu very quickly, we get so far away from the connotations and context of the original text. And very quickly, we just can 
have a reading of something that is more of a reflection of our own beliefs about what the good is, for example, than um, really being in touch with a historical figure's views and context. Uh, I think I think you, you put it nicely. It's I think analogy is not a is not a ne- yeah. negative thing on itself. The problem comes when we when we move from analogy mm-hmm. to reduction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we can put it. Like we are not looking for an analogy of eudaimonia. We're looking for a reduction of the concept in a way that fits a much more narrow discourse, and uh, that might make us lose sight yeah. of what's going on. Well, yeah. So if analogies can, or if we are avoiding reductive translations and analogies. What do you think a different approach would be? Like, what's a different approach? What's a different way to go about creating tools, creating pathways? Well, you know, I would say have the same charitable approaches to indigenous thought that you had for something like German thought. People don't seem to have a problem talking about the design. (laughs) But if uh, and nobody translates, you know, it's like, oh, it's something like, you know, this experience of, uh, uh, of uh, I don't know, of being in existence mm-hmm. in this German tradition. We don't have a problem seeing, we don't say, oh, that's just there, we can translate it to mm-hmm. existence. No, we say it's something like appeals to existence, but it's more complex like, like that. And you go about explaining mm-hmm. it. You don't have to be an expert in German to do that. So if you do that for German... Do that for yeah. all their languages. Do that for all the languages in Iroquois, in the Iroquois family language. Do that the same for the family of Quechua languages. So do this for other languages. So it's, it's not like we have yeah. a big problem doing that, right? When it comes yeah. from Europe. So That's a great point. I mean, I know this that sounds like a simplistic answer, but it's like, just do the same you do yeah. for white people. Well, and I mean, other I actually don't think it's a simplistic answer because it gives us something that we already do and already practice. And I also think that, you know, one thing that we're interested in with this podcast is teaching tools. You know, how might somebody teach some of the ideas from underrepresented or marginalized philosophical traditions? And I think that the approach that you're describing is something that um, instructors can really model in a lot of classrooms. Like you can really sort of be... um, Um, an exemplar of that kind of um, charitable engagement for your students, right? By like talking about the text and saying, what do we think this means? It can't be as simple, you know, what do we think Pacha means? It can't be just nature. It's not just time. How could we understand, how can we start to approximate this concept? And modeling that for your students, I think, um, is a really excellent way to or it would seem to me is a really good way to sort of start inculcating that capacity in people. But I'm curious, yeah, what you think about teaching this material. Have you ever had a chance to teach any stories from the manuscript um, at the college level or in any other context? Well, currently I'm teaching uh, mm. an intro to epistemology class. I'm teaching that in a class called uh, Indigenous Perspectives on Global Justice, where I try to discuss Maori, Inu, and, and then thought as perspectives of uh, that we have to consider when we discuss global justice mm-hmm. and their implications in the different 
uh, stages of the world. And we can see that indigenous people have been having a voice that's yeah. philosophically relevant for, for our conversations of justice. It's just that political philosophy tends to just never pay attention, <laughs> tends to not have been paying attention. Uh, but in the in the case, so there I, I present some concepts of uh, some more applied philosophical ideas uh, that have a Quechua thought root, such as summa causae, which can be translated from Quechua as uh, roughly as living well. But if you ask me, I would translate it to something mm-hmm. like harmony, mm-hmm. living in harmony, mm-hmm. right? Uh, again, this is <laughs> so it's not about, you know, just translate. It's about trying right. to interpret right. what right. the meaning is. It's right. living in harmony. And this kind of uh, concept uh, can be, can, could be connected to something like this normative understanding mm. of Pacha. Pacha is not mm. only telling you how things are, but That's how so things ought to be. And then you have something like, okay, then Summa Causa is about respecting yeah. how things ought to be. And of course, this can lead us to some problematic discussions about the is-out debate, uh, and we can go back into Hume, but see, it becomes a much more richer debate, right? Uh, So let me just go back to the idea of my classes in epistemology. In epistemology, what usually we get uh, is just formal Western epistemology for a whole semester, right? So I'm like, that's not all that we can talk about knowledge, right? (laughs) I think knowledge is more is broader than that. So I try to connect that to, uh, mm. to feminist thought, and to some indigenous views. And I like Bain Deloria when he talks that the problem when we talk about a lot of the education and the presuppositions of knowledge, when engaging with Western education, the problem is that there is an implied metaphysical mm. set of views that mm. gets never discussed. So what I try to highlight to my students is that there's more than one conception of what time and space is. So if you're going to talk about what you can know, you are already presupposing some account of what is reality. So in those classes, I get to talk to my students about the concepts of Pacha and give examples of who can have more no- who can have knowledge or what kind of knowledge. Because in the text, in the word share manuscript, the story goes like this. There was a a peasant, you know, uh, just getting mad because he saw one of his best llamas mm. crying next to him. And the llama was just weeping. And he says, stupid animal, why are you crying? You have the best grass. And the llama basically debases itself and starts speaking in human language and says, I'm crying because you're all going to die. And you're too ignorant to realize this. Mm. And the whole thing was that Animals were already aware that there was a massive flooding coming and mm-hmm. was endangering everybody. So the peasant grabbed his family and his animals and went up to the top of the of this mountain where he got to save his life. But of course, animals mm-hmm. were already there. So it's like, well, human cognition is one of those things that we take to be this great thing. And I'm not thinking it's bad. I sure. like knowing what I know. <laughs> but... If I see a bunch of animals flying from the right to the left, it's because they know something. In a broad sense, I know. In a broad sense of knowledge. But I will follow them. Right. I'm not going to stay there to see what they are fleeing of. So this idea that con- certain cognitive capacities uh, from certain creatures are well beyond what humans have 
it's something that we can pick yeah. from these kind of documents. That also gives you some kind of epistemic Absolutely. humility. Um, if you could assign one text to all the philosophy students uh, at your institution, what would that text be? I would probably assign uh, an inquiry mm. concerning human understanding mm. by David Hume. Uh, not because I agree with everything he says there, but because I honestly love how he will present a good case to be more nuanced with your yeah. claims about knowledge. And you don't have to be an empiricist to mm -hmm. enjoy that book, right? But it might give you good food for thought to think, you know, maybe miracles could happen. We just have to, you know, be... Well, of course, we can challenge this very definition of uh, what a law of nature is, etc. But there's room to question a lot of things. And methodologically, I think yeah. that's fascinating. It's something that we should all be keeping an eye on. Just be, be open to challenge our own systems of thought and what we yeah. take for granted. I know some people might think, oh, you know, you should be recommending a, a particular book of from indigenous authors. I mean, I, I there are many that I would put on a syllabus, but if there was just one book, I would say get the book that will tell you that you shouldn't be trusting in all of your cognitive capacities. Yeah, that well, often. I mean, I think there's been kind of a thread running through our conversation for the last few minutes. Just, I mean, epistemic humility, I think, is something that, that you've raised. And I think that that's one way to put it, but it's also just sort of open-mindedness, you know, like being open to other ways of thinking that maybe aren't immediately familiar to you, along with that, not assuming that your sort of first instinct, which is usually something that's been, you know, educated into you anyway, being careful not to assume that that's just normatively better than other people's sort of first instinct or first um, place where they go when they encounter a philosophical question. And I think that, um, you're totally right that the inquiry like totally does model for us and kind of teach us how to be more circumspect about our own capacities and not just assume that they're the pinnacle of, of everything. That is just a really, yeah, really valuable kind of habit of mind to get into. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to think if there was anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet. Well, I'm just really eager to get more people to have these mm -hmm. discussions. You know, I... I was giving a talk about indigenous philosophy not that long ago at a university in BC, and a student asked me, "How can we get, you know, more, uh, more information about indigenous philosophical views? How how can we make that happen?" And my answer was, "Walk ten meters away mm -hmm. from the philosophy department because the department of indigenous studies or native studies is next yeah. door." So all I could say is like just do the effort of going out of philosophy to find philosophical views that are so close to us. Uh, but just because they're not presented on a text published by the, the commonly well-known philosophy publishers, doesn't mean mm -hmm. that they're not philosophically relevant. And of course, if you're going to be working with oral traditions, make sure you have the, per the permission, you know, like the, the blessing of those yeah. who hold the knowledge. Because many times that knowledge is kept secret and or at least it's transmitted in a particular way with particular uh, degrees of filters that need to be mm -hmm. respected so be, being mindful of that still like 
if we want to be more aware of this whole set of philosophical views that exist in the world, beyond what we were told was possible, we just have to go next door. Yeah. And it's not like indigenous people right. died out. They were pushed to the brink sometimes, but they're still around, in even yeah. in the American continent. Well, thank you so much, Jorge. This has been so interesting for me. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I think this conversation has been super productive. I like the opportunity to be able to explain what I'm doing, what I'm interested in, and uh, some of the views that I have. And I'm looking forward to seeing the podcasts being posted online. Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This episode was produced by me, Olivia Branscom. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.